Welcome to the 15th show in the C-Suite podcast series. I'm Russell Goldsmith, and the topic for our guests this time round is social's role in the finance industry. Joining me in the studios of Marketeers are Nick Jones, Head of Digital Communications and Corporate Responsibility for Visa Europe, Sharon O'Day, Head of Digital Communications at Standard Chartered, and Keith Lewis, Social Media Manager at Zurich Insurance. Now, I first uh, started putting this panel together as I was keen to look at social's role in a highly regulated industry, and of course, finance ticks that box, and we have representatives from various aspects of the industry here. Nick, let's come to you first, as I, uh, I thought we could kick off discussing the parameters you have to work within um, when it comes to social comms and naturally I'm particularly thinking here of the uh, Financial Conduct Authority, or as most people know it, the uh, FCA. Yeah, there's a lot of fear around regulation. Um, and if you come in from outside the industry, um, it can be quite, uh, quite quite a barrier, particularly in social comms. You know, social comms is about being real-time and free and you know, pivot and do things in an agile manner. However, I think if you are a good communicator, you know that the fundamental thing about the company you're working for, the brand, is the reputation. So I think that gives you a lot of cues and a lot of um, natural checks, which should help you tweet in a manner that's responsible and hopefully lines up with the compliance uh, re regime that's out there. Funnily enough, Visa wasn't regulated by the FCA until very, very recently. So right. it's a, a journey that we're, you, you were looking at, you, uh, along with a number of other payment providers and payment service companies, uh, we're now uh, regulated by the Bank of England as being a part of the national infrastructure. Uh, the FCA and a payment systems regulator as well. And I forgot about Europe. There's a European regulator as well. So the phrase that in our companies were learning to live with regulation. Have you had to change a lot of processes then? In um, well, we've had to double check things yeah. a, a lot. Okay. Uh, in terms of the comms output and the social media output, uh, I sit within a corporate comms function. So we're talking about the company in particular rather than perhaps the product offer because we don't issue the cards. That's the banks or the card issuers that do that as well. They're the ones that have the customer relationship. And obviously with financial products and uh, the FCA, you're in a, lot of a much tighter environment. And I'm guessing that's where our that colleagues leads, today might, might have some thoughts exactly. as well. Leads nicely on to Sharon then from the it, bank's perspective. It, it does indeed. Um, so, so in our case, we have to think about not just the FCA, but also all the other jurisdictions in which we're present and, and where you do have that product information woven into to your social presence. Um, it does involve having a, a, an awful lot of legal and compliance sign-off. So for us, it's actually really been about getting the process right. And as, as Nick said, you, you do know the parameters and, and you know what kind of messaging needs to, needs to go through those processes. But it means that we had to have legal and compliance sign-off at both a global level and a local level, thinking about perhaps maybe your Facebook presence. Um, and that does mean that we're not as responsive as maybe other industries are. So I can't see us having um, having a kind of Super Bowl moment at, at a bank because actually the sign-off does take time and there is a reticence to do things at that sure. kind of speed. Okay, Keith? Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, we, we try and govern ourselves under the, the, the other law of common sense, um, which is obviously that we want people to forget about. And as long as we're staying clear of anything that could get us anywhere close to being in trouble will be fine. So we're governed by the FCA as a financial promotion company, so we have to make sure that everything we say um, doesn't go there. But we we wouldn't get into social. We're a, we're a Swiss traditional conservative insurance company. We're not going to be out there trying to sell, sell, sell. We're not about that. We're about expertise and showing people what value we as an insurance company, our relationships with our customers, whether that's a broker, a local authority, an individual homeowner can add value to, to them. So it's not about selling. And it's when you get into the selling of a product, that's where you start yeah. to get the, nerv the nervousness around it. So as long as you don't go there, then it's very different. Yeah. But I mean, you, you talk about steering clear of getting into trouble. I mean, Zurich's actually fallen foul of the F FSA in the past. Yeah. Um, so does that make 
you know the company or your company even more nervous when if, you know about posting things on, um, on social? Not about social. I think it, it adds to the nervousness about structure and process um, rather than the, the end game. We have to be careful. Yes, um, the reason we fell foul is because we didn't have the right process in place to realise that um, a data tape had gone missing in another country and we didn't find out about it. That was the problem, right. not the fact that the way we did things, it was the fact that we didn't know about the, something had happened. So when it comes to social, yes, look, we, we've got um, compliance issues that we need to address, but um, that comes back to us in the social team having making the right friends internally um, and having the right conversations to make sure that we're taking the whole company on a journey so that when the, f- the first time our legal guys see something isn't when they see it potentially on their Twitter or somebody says it to them, have you? what are you lot doing? We don't have that moment because we, yep. we're taking them on a, on a journey with us so they understand it, they realise what we're trying to do and what, what the end game is. Okay. I want to look at in terms of social media, You know, how much of your communications roles crosses over with other areas? So, for example, on, on customer service teams. Maybe, Sharon, you can pick that one up. Yeah. Um, it, they are sort of two sides of the same coin in many ways. But although customer service are the experts at dealing with those interactions with customers. If that goes wrong, it can start to become a reputational issue. So it is essential for us that, that we get that right. Um, I think when we first started to get involved in social, like a lot of people, we were kind of experimenting, putting out the, you know, the odd message here and there. And ultimately, if we choose to talk to people on those platforms, then they can equally make that choice to talk back to us about the issues that they're facing. So that's really meant getting those relationships right internally, as you talked about, Keith, and ensuring that uh, we've got the right processes in place. Um, so for us, that started off being something that we handled within our team, but it eventually just meant that we had to build up that capability within the service quality team so that they can answer those queries, they can understand um, the, the right kind of tone, and vo- tone of voice. So um, it's really about getting the right kind of uh, content in place and helping them to respond in the right kind of way so that as a, a whole organisation we come across as consistent and fair and people understand that their, their query will be resolved. And, and for us at the corporate centre, that means that we can avoid the rep- reputational risk that might go with them um, being handled badly. Okay, Nick, you're nodding uh, away there. <laughs> yeah, it, that, that thing about tone, I think, is particularly mm. important. And one thing we do when someone w- runs up to us, yeah, we want to join social media, we want a yeah. Twitter account or whatever, Zing, in the Germans, you know, that's, you know mm. things like that. Mm. Um, okay, that's great. Who's your audience? The basics of good comms mm. planning. And then we get them to listen for yeah. a while. We want to understand the, sort of the, the heartbeat, the, the rhythm of, of their audience you know, over, the, over, over the days and weeks to understand what looks normal, what looks abnormal, what would get you worried. And we find that's a great way for them to hone the proposed content. Often the first draft of the content is very good, nice, but nice. Uh, so how do you then get them to think, actually, you, you, how would this be perceived by the, that person that tweeted that last week? So it just helps give them that application, uh, which hones the, the content. Yeah, just picking up on what you just said there about... Um you know, a different platform there in Germany, for example. I've, I've, I was just over in a, a conference in um, Stuttgart uh, last week, actually, and then going coming back to the office trying to connect with people on LinkedIn, and then not on LinkedIn because they're on the other platform. Yeah. I think you just mentioned it, Zing. Zing, Zing yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I was going to ask you about channels and, and um, sort of where you focus your efforts. How, how does that work then in terms of if, you, if there's so many different places yeah, yeah. across, you, you know, for, within you, you, a European role? You go back three or four years when we were all taking our first steps in social mm. media. You know, there's a new platform every six weeks. Mm. It was easy to join one, play with it, and just, you know, dispose of it after a month or carry on. It's got quieter. Uh, we do have a variety of channels, but you know, our, our tier one 
to use an old PR phrase, mm. our tier one channels are Twitter and LinkedIn. LinkedIn and financial services is fantastic, particularly given our sort of B2B uh, com, comms mission. You know, it's not a racy place. It's quite sensible. People behave a bit like bankers mm. and people in financial services. So we find that works very well. Again, it works well in Germany. It, it seems to cohabit with Zing. Mm. Uh, we have some content in Zing, but again, it's not that interactive. But, you, but, but we see from our LinkedIn German content that it works really well, and particularly if you localise... I may even just be topping and tailing an, art, an article in English with some German guidance and what yeah. it's about, and the engagement rates just go way up. Yeah. Any particular channels that you focus on? Keith? I mean, as, as Nick says, that's exactly where we are. Our focus is on, on Twitter because that's where customers tend to engage with us and, and the different sorts of customers that we've got. LinkedIn from an expertise perspective and trying to get more of uh, my colleagues around the business to realise that they are experts in their own world and LinkedIn is a great place to develop their own personal brand. Um, but then we're also d- dabbling and trialling some other areas which you wouldn't na- naturally expect. Um, Instagram um, is is one. We have to remember that we're a company. We've got 22 locations in the UK, 7,500 people at the moment. So we, we're as an employer, um, we want to try and get some good talent coming through, whether it's our intern programmes, our grad programmes. So where's the audience? They're in the more visual content. So we're looking at how we can use those channels to better reach those people to get them through the door as well as the perhaps the other con- the traditional content that you'd where you'd expect us to be okay Sharon you uh, a very similar picture for us we, we need to go where our audience is and like a lot of um, big organizations we're starting to see a, a, a real decline in, in Facebook and, and understanding whether it's got real value for us particularly on the corporate side um, but as we're focused in Africa Asia and, and the Middle East uh, we have to think about also the regional focus so Facebook is still huge in, in a lot of our developing markets like um, Indonesia for example but on the other hand we also have the challenge of places like China where uh, of course it, it's got almost no presence at all very much like like Nick has said though LinkedIn is is reaping particular rewards for us because it's the right kind of audience and, and the sort of people that, that we want to bank with us are on LinkedIn Okay so you're going at you. You mentioned a number of different channels in terms of trying to reach the audience. I'm guessing, you know, getting customers or potential customers to engage with your respective organisations on social, you know, must be quite a challenge in terms of the finance industry. I mean, and this is just my opinion, obviously, but managing your finance, tax returns, sorting your various insurance policies, not the most popular of pastimes. You know, how do you, how do you go about once you've you know where you're, you know where that you're going to find them, but how do you then go about actually engaging and, and building those advocates? Who wants to pick this one up, Sharon? Sure. Um, it's true that people aren't as keen to engage with their bank on, on social channels as they might be for, for other types of products. So, you know, I'll happily argue about why I have an iPhone and not a Samsung because you feel passionate about that as a product. I wouldn't tell you about why I bank with one bank over another um, because you just don't have that emotional relationship with it. On the other hand, people do trust their banks and their financial services institutions to provide them with the sort of inf- information they need on subjects they find really hard to understand. Um, so in our case, for example, you might have small or medium-sized enterprises who are trying to think, how can I start to connect to sell my product into these emerging markets? And actually, they do look to us for information on how they might do that and what kind of products they might need. Um, but in any conversation, like the one we're having now, there is a balance to be struck between what you want to tell people and what they want to hear from you. And and, and actually, the sweet spot is finding that little bit in the middle where we, we really are giving people something that's of value because it has to be a value exchange or people won't take the time to engage with okay. us. Do you think... You know, in terms of social media, do you think it provides the industry with an opportunity to educate the younger audience um, in terms of teaching them about managing finances? And I, and I guess the issue still, you know, it's still quite hard to, in, to engage with them. But um, Nick, when we spoke before, you know, when we were sort of 
putting the, the idea of this podcast together, you mentioned blended learning. So I was wondering if you could maybe expand oh, yeah. on that and explain how you think you know the industry might engage the younger audience with those kind of tools. I'll give you a little bit of context about financial education, why we do it, and then how we deliver it, which is the key point about how we then mix social media and formal learning. You know, Visa, we're very passionate. We want to equip young people to thrive in the digital economy. One of the things that happens in a digital economy is cash disappears. Scandinavian economies are really, really down the line in that one. Children nowadays will play with coins in kindergarten. That may be the only time they'll touch real money. So I think we have a duty to equip them to thrive. So naturally we do financial education. We work with partners. We're a relatively small organisation in terms of staff, so we can't, you know, like a bank, roll a, lot of, roll a whole lot of volunteers in, into a school. So we enable uh, organisations like Young Enterprise, who have fantastic uh, levels of trust with the teacher, with the Ministry of Education, uh, and the programmes are good for the pupils. Now, that's a very traditional way of doing it. You have volunteers with an expert going into a setting and, and, and training. That's brilliant. It works. We can prove it. We've got the impact studies. That's great. But we all know the kids, uh, our children, are spending time on everything else and doing things in a very informal way. Mm. So you have sort of self-guided learning, the Khan Academy world, uh, things like that one. How do you blend those two? So when they walk out of the classroom out of that fantastic experience, how do they carry on? I think it's a real challenge, not just for financial education, but anyone trying to do a, a, a education. How do we create this new, this new model? Uh, and it will be have lessons applicable for our own organisations internally, how we do training and development. So it's, it's doubly fascinating. Yes, it's yeah. good for financial education, but it's also really good for learning generally. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm a product of Young Enterprise, having done that at school back in the day. So it really does add the value to it. I mean, our, where, where we bring that from an insurance perspective is into things like through Ensley. So Ensley's our is owned by Zurich World. People don't realise that. We're happy to leave that. But it's kind of taking the, the students when they first leave home away from the comfort blanket of mum and dad and, the com- and their, their insurance is then taking them through that journey when they go off to, to university to understand the different risks with all the gadget issues that they're now taking them to understand, trying to make it work for them and show them the value of insurance. Because, oh look, pe- people don't tweet about the um, the latest premium that we're it's taking their that. money up, <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it? Um, and it, and for us, we're sort of selling a promise yeah. um, that hopefully most of our customers will never have to, to cash in. Um, so we take them, all they see is every year their renewal come in, their money going out, and hopefully they never have to, to see the benefit. But actually, talking from a young people language, if they lose their iPhone, their world falls apart. So that's where the value of insurance starts to, to add up. So trying to take people on that and making the whole piece work and understand how they look after their own risk and what that then develops. And then the key thing is then taking them through that yeah. as they become business people, homeowners themselves and, and on to later life. Okay. Keith, let's stick with you and also sticking on the theme of education, but more from an internal comms perspective. Now, Zurich has numerous divisions targeting you know across a number of different areas, yeah. consumers, brokers, local authorities, commercial audiences, amongst others. So varied messages. Um but would it be fair to say that your role involves working across all of these divisions, more of a training, the various Absolutely stakeholders, does, yeah. yeah, to understand how they can use social, yeah, rather than personally getting in. Yeah, we've, we've got to take 7,000 people on a journey with us. I keep talking about journeys, but it, it, it is a... <laughs> Feels like we're on X Factor. For, for us, it's very much a, um, giving people the confidence and the, the, the tools and the techniques and the, the mindset that you talked about before that go just listen for a bit, um, getting them to understand how social works, how they can use it professionally. Um, and then they'll start to do it, and then they'll start to attach the brand name to it maybe later on, but that's fine. Or they can start to share our content that makes them look more professional in their world, but hopefully then um, in their own communities and their own personal lives helps the company in the, in the long run. There's no short-term win for us in social, very much on our side, but 
if we plant the seed and we educate people and they can share content, we give them good content, um, then that will all work across. So, yeah, I sit across the whole of the business there and try and educate people both from the top down because we, we need people at the top level of the C-suite to be out there understanding social and talking about it positively, not necessarily doing it themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm less concerned that my CEO doesn't tweet. What I am concerned about is that he's out there talking to brokers, customers, and his workers, his 7,500 people in the UK, and he's talking about the opportunity that social can give. That's what I'm concerned about, and making us a more social business, as well as then working from the bottom up to educate people as to how they can use the different channels, how they can use it professionally, how they can collaborate and make themselves better, more connected people, and therefore they they become more engaged with the company, they stay longer, they do better work, all the yeah. productivity things that we all know about, and people start to see it and actually live it. We've, we've actually done previous episodes on uh, social business and internal comms as well. Sharon, Nick, have you got anything sort of like to add on, on that at all? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think what we do externally with social media is a lot easier than what you can do internally, particularly with the reputational and security you know, values of, of, of our financial service brands as well. I mean, it, it's, I used to work in government and going to work at Visa, the joke was I was going to go to play with some real national infrastructure. You know, everything relies on security is phenomenal, and that's good, and that's positive. But that does have challenges when it comes to what sort of social tools can you use internally as well. Mm-hmm. So I actually always forces you a little bit more to think, of, why am I really doing this? Am I just doing it to be cool? Or do I actually really need this functionality? Do you really need that in order to have the conversation internally? as well so it's a bit of a double, yeah. double-edged sword okay i mean sticking with internal comms for a second i mean um keith a couple of weeks ago in the news zurich um announced plans to cut 440 jobs in the uk how do you manage the social media reaction from from something like that it's as part of the the everyday communications process we think about the audience who, who might receive it and and we kind of we don't get worried about it so most of our our employees aren't the sorts of people who would be going out and and being emotional about it, if you like, which in a, in a really crucial time for themselves, it re- it's not a good time for, sure. for many people. But they're sensible, they're reliable people, and they're professional. We we employ professional people to do to do a job, and they understand if we get the message right about why we're making changes, then people will understand it, and they don't then go and blurt about it in a way. But we've got to understand that sometimes people will, and they have a right to, yeah. and, and we're not going to we're not going to get on top of stopping that. But if we can educate people as to the benefit of it, um, of, of social and how they can perhaps talk about it. Use social to talk about the problem. Use it as an opportunity to develop new skills, talk to new people. Um, then that's going to help. But yeah, sometimes businesses all across the country um, will have to make difficult decisions at, yep. the, at these times. So you've got to be aware of that and build it into the process. Okay. Um, I want to take a question that we've had from a uh, listener of ours, uh, Stuart Bruce. Um, Stuart has asked, uh, and this came in via Twitter, how uh, do you manage local messages when social transcends borders, but you've got different regulations in different countries? Who wants to take that one, Nick? It's really interesting. Um, you know, the, the classic model is global strong centre, uh, local delivery. Uh, where does the pendulum fall between that? We've, we've, we've swung it out to the countries over recent years, given them a lot more autonomy. Uh, and less of the brand policing, I think what I call more of the consulting uh, w- w- with them. Um, I think I think what, what's important is to have that message framework, that message, know what you're doing, why you're doing it. And you know, Keith mentioned that in the internal context of this is why we're doing it. Here are the messages that are clear. You've got to know that. You've got to have that strong. But then working with the local market on how's that expressed? You know, the illustrations can change or do you need something additional? So a good example, we work with our colleagues in Turkey, which is not part of the EU, but is a very large market within our region, 
uh, you know, of, of, of the world as well. And that's always a great check of, yeah, you guys are going on about that at the centre, but you know what, that just does not apply here. Mm-hmm. So you have that conversation and, 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 you know, and work with them. And, you know, in a way, it's very unsocial media and digital. Go visit them, understand them, see their context, walk in their shoes. A bit of humbleness always goes a long way uh, to, to building up the goodwill that allows you to have a more perhaps robust conversation about why they do need to stick to the plan at, at this level. And, you know what, I trust you to do that thing on your own yep. over there. There's a, bit, there's a bit of a platform thing here. I don't necessarily talk about tools, but being able to have different country channels on one platform where you can actually see the content that's being produced within your company, but in another country sometimes helps. Um, and you can help people out on a language issue. We had a, there was an issue I picked up locally. Some, one of our Malaysian um, yeah, colleagues had, had put a tweet out from the Malaysian account, um, but one of the words they use, which is, makes perfect sense, in, in the language over there definitely didn't work in the UK when I saw it and was quite rude. So I had to go back and explain to them. But if you see that, you can start to manage it and people can understand what content is being is happening in other countries. Mm. And then you can you can see it and you can perhaps influence it and work together. It's like breaking down that um, those silos that we operate, we often operate in by natural, I mean, the UK, everyone else leave, leave alone. But actually yeah. what we're doing in the UK might work just as well for in Italy or the US or the Far East or, or Australasia. So it's just seeing it and getting a global community around it internally so that we can do it better. Sure. Um, it, it's quite a similar picture with us. We've had that pendulum swing both ways, really. We started off with having everything done at a local level, which meant there wasn't the consistency went towards having everything produced at the centre. And now we've got more of a blended model where people who work out in the markets engage with us in a conversation and we commission that together. And there's a lot of um, uh, economies of scale that can be gained there as well, where we commission things jointly and then give people a toolbox of content that they can then adapt and use to meet their own needs. And that ensures that we've got consistency of message across some of the markets. Uh, But very much like you said, Keith, there can be some issues that you need to work through with, with some of our markets. So I often find that things that come out from some of our Asian markets, I just... It sort of bristles. You think, really? Someone's published that. But actually, it, it does go down really, really well in those markets. I think of places like Thailand, where actually the type of content that I, I would think is really schmaltzy is actually extremely popular. Um, Kitt- kittens? They love a kind of a, a sort of schmaltzy life story. Emotional. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're, but they're really, really popular, and a lot of insurance brands in particular tend to use that kind of content. Um, so actually, as we've gone on that another journey actually learned a lot more about what works in each market and got got a lot of feedback so things that we've just sort of um prescribed from the corporate center has not been well received and and vice versa um and at the end of that i think we've reached a model now where they use some of our content they don't use other parts of it and at the end of it i think that the the overall picture that that the end consumer then gets is one that's a lot more consistent and supports our messaging worldwide it's just like the way you know um, the, way, the way we engage with the consumer exter- externally. You know, we do, we have to earn their trust mm. and give them good value. And internally, there's a fantastic model that someone from the Tesco e-commerce platform talked about: for you, with you, by you. When you have that conversation with your partners elsewhere in the organisation, here's what the centre is <coughs> going to do for you, and it might be prescriptive. You will put your website on this platform. Mm. We will harvest the data. So it's something like that. You know, we need this to do business. Yeah. Uh, with you is back to the conversation. Do you know what? We can learn together. You can take this idea. We'll take this back in. We can give you an, an opinion. We can coach, consult, you know, whatever. And then buy you is that local context. You know how to set the prices in Thailand. You know what works. You run with that within the overall guidance. And that's always helped me structure that conversation because it can get quite protective, you know, between my country, my culture, and my my, 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 my protocol, my guidance that I have at the centre. Okay. Um I want to switch to actual campaign activity. Nick, um, I'm going to come to you about the at 
Visa Europe feed, and I um, I had a quick look at that. Um, and I guess you know it's always a good sign whenever you go on Twitter and it tells you that a number of you know a number of followers that I know are are on that. So so that sort of like gives you a bit of um, confidence in it. It looks like there's some good payment information shared. You've got uh, twenty thousand followers. What I'm always keen to understand is how you measure the uh, the ROI on a feed like that. And the reason being, when you start to look closer you then start to see there's not a huge amount of engagement um you know a few retweets a couple of likes per tweet and then when you i often look through the the followers of of these mm. these feeds and then you start to see you know well, who are they and actually a lot of them look either fake or, or at best inactive and in fact sharon I'll, I'll come to you after nick because obviously i noticed standard chartered retweet a lot of Liverpool FC's uh, tweets, understandably, because, you know, you're a sponsor of the club. And Liverpool recently made a big fuss about reaching 5 million followers. And I'm just thinking, seriously, is, you know, has anyone in that team actually looked at who those followers are? Because if they did, and I did my usual, well, let's see who these people are. Mm. And you can probably discount, you know, a huge percentage of those. Nick, maybe yeah, you want Yeah, I mean, Vizirup News, it's a corporate news account. Uh, we have some consumer marketing ones as well, which are more prom- promotional. Um, the 20,000, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a big number for us in financial services and education for a B2B audience. We reckon there's four or 5,000 people sort of day-to-day interested in financial services and payments in particular in Europe, you know, that maybe make a decision or influence it. So we know a lot of people that follow us because we're a popular brand name. Also, uh, we're Europe. There's lots of people in America. You still find quite a lot of consumer Americans, as it were, mm-hmm. following us. And that's, that's they can follow us, but that's not the target audience. Uh, when it comes to evaluating and, 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 and tuning and making it more effective, we are very, very focused on the engagement. Reach is nice. Engagement is better. Uh, and in particular, we are looking to, you know, we kind of know what works, that that level of what's you know, what's normal, a couple of retweets, whatever. Uh, we know when it starts stepping up a little bit. And what we've done a lot recently is really concentrate on content reuse, uh, content recycling. And having stuff content that's that, that's sort of perennial almost, and you know we look at what's what's working outside, what other people are seeing in the content space, sorry the payment space, uh, and you know what, what what's happening amongst the, the people we think are influential, and we look at the keywords and we get going on retweeting and putting things in, back into conversation as right. well. So, so so reusing other people's content, not no, necessarily yours or, no, or your. No, no, a lot of it's ours. Uh, yeah, and okay. what we've done is we've created vision.vizieurope.com, which is more right. of a an opinions piece. So we have that content where we can get something and put it out uh, you know, and get it that way. And it's working. We're very happy with our numbers uh, internally. Uh, one interesting thing is that back to that conversation with colleagues. Yes, we in digital know our numbers and we like it and our measures, but how do you translate that into not, I was going to say old speak, business speak. Okay, you're reaching them. Okay, who are you reaching? What are they doing? Oh, I've got a retweet. So what does that mean? Yeah as well and then working at those next level of, of connections particularly around influencers as well that's the really interesting idea of can you convert that 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 fleeting interest into into actually a connection that's that's powerful and and how much time is spent on analyzing these numbers or you know, I mean, um, have you got a, t- a specific team or is it one individual's role we we, we have um my immediate my immediate team's four people one of whom is the analyst but it's very much not a case of the data monkey in the corner. He, yeah. He's involved in, in all aspects as well, but he's he's keeping an eye on the numbers, and we're doing it. You know, we're trying to get them among circulate amongst the team a lot more, so we can say, hey, what's happening there? Has it gone up? Has it gone down? Yeah. Why is it happening? Sharon, on on the uh, Liverpool Football Club <laughs> question. Yeah, I mean, it, it, socialism is really unfair a, of me. It but is uh, a, well. <laughs> 
it, it is a numbers game insofar as you know we we, we are concerned about how much um, reach it gets. But really, yeah. like like Nick said, it's about engagement. Are we reaching the right people? So um, Liverpool is a bit of a strange one for us because we don't have a retail business in the UK. So a lot of people who follow us for updates about Liverpool are not of huge value for us commercially. Um, so we actually need to focus on getting to the right people, and that is about analysing the data and, and doing more of a deep dive to understand are we hitting the right kind of audiences. Mm. So we do an awful lot of tracking, an awful lot of analysis. Um, we, we do as with an agency on a, on a daily basis and checking, is it reaching influencers? Are we kind of getting the right reach in the right market? So who are those retweets from? Who, um, who's the engagement from? Uh, so Liverpool is a little bit of a, a red herring there for us, yeah. although obviously that they, they do help us to reach a wider audience. Sure. And it's okay. a great partnership we've got there. Um, we've been going through a process since I came into to my role at the start of May this year, actually looking at who is in our follower base. So we we started social when um, Twitter was becoming a thing in two thousand and seven, eight, and started to develop. And nothing's re- we haven't really had a strategy behind it. But now I've I've come in. I'm kind of retrofitting a strategy and doing this what I call plumbing about getting the the, the processes right across the business to to make sure we have a look at are the people that we're following are we getting the engagement. I've stripped out the, the fake followers because there are some free tools out there that identify who they are. So mm. it's quite it's quite easy to do that now. You don't have to go through them all on your Twitter feed thinking, he doesn't look real and get rid of that one. We just run it through a, um, a free tool and mm. you, you get rid of five or six at a time. But we, yeah. we, So we don't have that big a problem. Um, but then the next piece of work is, so we've got the right audience, then we need to do a piece of work to make sure that we... We can attract them, we give them the content they want, we understand what they want and give it to them when they need it for us. Just picking up on quite a similar point there, we did that sort of analysis on who our followers were and found because of the Liverpool issue, they were completely skewed the wrong way. Yeah. We've got a lot of young men in, in the Liverpool area. So actually, we've had to feed that back into our content commissioning and thinking, actually, what do we need to create that isn't about Liverpool to appeal appeal to those wider audiences? So women, people in um, particular markets in Africa and Asia, who, you know, some of them are attracted to Liverpool, but for our older and wealthier and more affluent cu- customers... Yeah. They want entirely different things from us. So actually doing that deep dive into the data can really help you understand what what you need to communicate. Okay. Um, well, I was going to say thanks for ask, answering that because I, I, I've had <laughs> feedback that I'm too nice to my guests and I was trying to, th- but I'm, you know, I'm a nice guy. So I was trying to think how, what's the toughest question I could ask? So that was, that's about as tough as it, as it gets. Listen, the, the nature of money and payments is changing and, and Nick... You, you you had a launch, um, I think, last week, or, or you put out a press release, the Future of Retail report yeah. um, that Visa Europe um, did. And in that, it said, uh, social media and smartphone adoption make the UK market one of the most revolutionary in Europe and the most uh, prepared for tomorrow's shoppers. Do you want to um, tell us a little bit more about that and how Visa sees social role in, in the, developing the whole purchasing process? It's, I would say it's interesting. I work in the industry, but wearing my old journalist hat, it is. You know, four or five years ago, it was fairly conservative. Things were steady. You probably found it difficult to get people to engage about payments. Uh, what we're seeing is quite a revolution, and in, in its two ways, it's an experience revolution for the customer. The payment stage is dropping out of the, the journey. People want people talk about making it frictionless. So you have a card on file at Uber, Airbnb, your coffee shop, your you know your app, whatever. You're not getting the card out anymore. So that's a really, really fascinating point. The retailers love it because it's a smoother, more theatre, nicer journey. Customer feels nicer, etc. But also because the the plumbing in in you know in, in the business is 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 so good, what can you do with the data as well? Um, we have um, you, you you in the area of re- retail in particular, you've got the, the, the sort of above the water, the theatre, the experiments with new formats for shopping. Uh, because of you know, this rearrangement of, of parts of the journey, and then below it, 
what can you do with the, the data as well and how, how that runs through it as well. So it is a particularly interesting time in retail. Um, your payments is part of it. It's not everything. Uh, we're quite passionate about it, obviously. You've had Apple Pay coming in, which is, uh, a, you know, adds to the excitement. You know, it runs on our rails. Um, you know, so it's a, you know, somewhat of a, a, a plumbing level and ingredient, ingredient brand. But again, it's making people interested in what happens. Sharon, Keith, any thoughts on how social will continue to integrate into into your areas of finance? Well, it, certainly from an insurance perspective, we're using it more of a, a risk prevention kind of way. So we all now know if, you, if you've got smart meters at home or if something goes on with all the connected home, that actually we're looking at how we can make our products and our services better f- to solve things like that. Because actually, if people have a, a connected home and they've got a device, so I know full well if the temperature in my house goes up, above 25 degrees, my phone's going to go off and tell me, which means either the kids are playing with the boiler or there's a fire. So therefore, I'm going to get on the phone straight away, whereas five years ago, I'd have got home to find the fire brigade still there dampening it down with one home less to go. So that the new world is going to change how people do insurance and how we as insurers react and, and deal with customers before they actually need to make a claim. And it stops the claim from happening in the first place, which is a, a new world for us to, to think about how so we... So were you, were you being encouraging customers to download that app and will that get them a discount? You know, I think uh, that's certainly the stuff we're looking at. Yeah. With, with car security now, you know if your car's gone because your phone's going to tell you that someone's it's, it's moving. You know where your stuff is. Yeah. You can get pressure pads for your home to know that um, if someone st- goes over your doorstep, a security thing might go off on your, on your phone wherever you are and you know full well that it's not you because you're in the coffee shop and you know it's not your wife because she's at work so if somebody else is, is on your front in your in your door yeah. um, so all those things will factor in how we as insurers deal with your claim Aut- okay. autonomous driving the way drones can be used to, to actually then deal with issues and fix things 3D printing how do we deal with how are we going to be gearing ourselves to deal with that what are the implications of that from a positive side of thing but also the, the risks involved of using um a piece of technology that someone's just printed in their in their living room to yeah. fix something, and then that breaks. So all the, all those sorts of issues are really interesting, as well as all the social data that's out there with people telling everywhere they are. You've just made insurance really interesting. We could do a we whole podcast do, on that. We should do that. We should think about that. <laughs> Sharon, sorry, you were going to... Uh, it's, it is, uh, as, as both of you said, a really, really interesting space at the moment. Um, and a lot of that is driven by non-bank players and non-traditional players. So um, in a lot of the Chinese uh, social media channels, you can actually do banking transactions through those instant messaging apps. And that's going to start kind of, I think, moving over to some of the more traditional markets over the coming years. The distinction between web and apps and social, I think, is becoming a lot more blurry and, uh, and and again, yeah. as Nick said, that's become a much more integrated and frictionless experience so that payment doesn't become the hardest bit of the process, but actually one of the simplest. Um, but also thinking more about the data. So uh, all data sets, we, we hardly ever mine much of the value out of them, but there's a huge value that we could get there out of understanding our customers. And as we're increasingly challenged by um, a, a lot of new players in the fintech space, so I know just in the last few weeks, there's a bunch of, uh, of new entrants in the market doing entirely new banking um, or banks from scratch, effectively, that are built around a social experience and entirely based on smartphones. And that really is forcing everyone to up their game. So if we can look at the social data and what people are saying about us and about about financial services in general, then we can really get into the mind of our customer and, and create better products. So really, it's about understanding and analysing the data and, and, and getting the real value from it. I, th- I think, in a way, social will go on the journey that digital's gone from being a, a, a challenger and surgeon into the organisation to being something within a particular function, comms or marketing, in something, and I use the best sense, transformational. Um, you, for example, we see um, sort of financial education and card products going together. 
So prepaid cards, but with an app that has um, spending controls and functionality. Uh, Go Henry is a fantastic example, and they have. And this is where it gets. This is where it really relates to social. It allows parents and children to set tasks, complete them, report back on what's happening, pay money, you know, manage finance. That's the stuff we used to argue about. And what Go Henry says is, we turn arguments into conversations. And just like the beginning, you know, you, you express some concern about how many people are interested in finance. A lot of people fear it. Yeah. And I think uh, social media can really help normalise in, in the most positive sense and make it approachable and engageable. And that's that, that's really good. If it removes the fear from it, it'll be fantastic. Excellent. Um, to finish off what I think is now going to be called the journey episode, aside from reading the FCA's uh, finalised guidance on social media and customer communication, sorry, which I found online that they released in March. Um, so, yeah, aside from reading that from cover to cover, uh, what, what tips can each of you give our listeners in terms of using social media in this sector? Let's Keith, let's start with you. Um, I think from an internal perspective, it's about getting the plumbing right uh, and talking about social as a positive thing. We're, we're, we are in the risk business, so inherently we're talking about bad things and stopping bad things. But what's the positive side? How can we use social to um, sell more, talk to more brokers, deal with um, IFA, answer customer queries, all those sorts of positive things we can do makes us more efficient and reminds people that we're here to do business with and we're experts and we're pretty good at it. Sharon? Um, adding to that, I think it, we have to show the value, but also I think my biggest tip would be talk to compliance early and often. It, once you have those processes in place uh, and everyone's got that kind of comfort that it's not a risk to the organisation or it's, it's only just a, a wrapping up of risk that already existed, then that gives you a firm basis on which to, uh, which to move forward and start to release some of that value. Okay, and we started uh, the podcast with Nick, so uh, let's finish with Nick. Um, just riffing on, on what Sharon said, um, someone said take the lawyers down the pub early <laughs> as well. So take compliance and lawyers down the pub. But just going back to a little conversation about countries, um, uh, Twitter app has now got translation built in. Follow a bank, an insurer, a peer in another country. See how they talk about it. And just sometimes that back translation into, into broken English gives you a little angle or a little insight into what's into the everyday humdrum language that we use. And that might just help you go on a journey. Right. Okay. And there's that word again. So a good way to finish off. Thanks again to uh, all three of my guests this month. That's uh, Keith Lewis, Sharon O'Day and uh, Nick Jones. Thanks also to Marketeers for hosting us and recording the show. And please remember, and please, please, please do remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. And uh, if you do subscribe, then uh, can you also give us a nice rating and uh, also any feedback? Because all that helps us uh, up the charts, which is uh, which will be really good because we'll get out to more people. Finally, if you want to get involved in this series of podcasts, uh, then just get in touch with me on Twitter as well using at Ruskell. Smith. Uh, Thanks for listening and goodbye.